Welcome to Two Therapist Tales, a podcast where Jacqueline Sabodi and Anna Zonin work to normalize conversations about mental health. Hello, and welcome back to Two Therapist Tales. I'm Jacqueline Sabodi, and today I have some amazing guests joining me. We have Beverly Mason, uh, LCSW, she, her, and hers. Beverly received her MSW from Rutgers University School of Social Work. She is currently a doctoral candidate in her second year, again, at Rutgers School of Social Work. Beverly is the director of new treatment program at Rutgers University Counseling Services, treating students with acute needs for concentrated mental health care, much like an IOP, but right on campus and built around an academic schedule. Beverly is the owner of a small private practice in Princeton, New Jersey, and specializes in young adults, adoption-related issues, and LGBTQIA issues. Zan Hegarty is also joining us, is a licensed clinical social worker who is non-binary, uses she, they pronouns, and works at a large state university as well as a private practice. Their clinical focus is on high-risk clients who struggle with chronic suicidal thoughts, self-harm, and mood liability. She also works primarily with members of the queer and trans community. And last, I have Stefan J. Simonovich. He is a licensed clinical social worker, trans man, and owner of TransForward, a private practice located in Connecticut. Stefan graduated from the Columbia University and has worked in a variety of LGBT plus affirming settings. Stefan has worked with hundreds of trans folks across ages and backgrounds and has developed an in-depth understanding of the intersection of social cultural trauma complex PTSD, and the trans experience. Stefan centers his practice in an uplifting trans experience by holding space for de-internalizing harmful mes- the harmful message or negative beliefs of self by using trauma and centered therapy like EMDR. Stefan focuses practice on the psycho-emotional transition, guiding folks in accessing embodiment, agency, self-understanding, and internal integration. Today we want to get together and talk all about Pride Month. I want to thank everyone for joining. Um, those were some really impressive introductions. Um, and I literally feel like I'm in the company of famous people. <laughs> Welcome. So, thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining. So let's kind of um, jump right in. Um, I'm a little bit of like a history nerd. So I always like want to know like why and who and what were people doing? Um, so I thought it could be great to start with the history of Pride Month and why is it in June and kind of what was happening and what was occurring? So anyone who wants to start and kind of has that history of the Stonewall riots and what that means for, you know, anyone who's listening who knows absolutely nothing or knows a little bit or knows all of it. <laughs> Somebody go. I, I tag, not me. How <laughs> to find the bar. Yes. Yeah, so there was a bar, right? You want to talk about what happened at the bar? <laughs> I can jump in. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was ahead, a riot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, it started off, um, police would routinely raid the bar um, Stonewall Inn, which was in the Greenwich Village, still mm-hmm. is. Um, and so essentially what happened one night in June is that um, all the queer people who were routinely um, kicked out and, and arrested and harassed um, just fought back. And mm-hmm. the um, the kind of rebellion continued for multiple nights in a row um and it became this sort of like um it, it kind of started or it, it's what we use to identify like the beginning of a movement that then later over time and through the years really formalized into 
what's now pride, but what really like started off as um, protest riots um, and, you know, a pretty violent event. Yeah. And um, thank you, Zan, for sharing all the, the history. Um, and it was the 1950s and 1960s, like not all that long ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to note too that, you know, a lot of the movement was led by trans people mm-hmm. and particularly trans women of color, which is very mass, of course, and mm-hmm. um, history and mm-hmm. the colonialism of our history. So that's definitely important to note. And I think the trans community has very much been shadowed in that way. And it's very much been framed through a predominantly cis, well, cis actually, and I would say gay male perspective white email perspective there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong but i just think it's important to note that absolutely that trans people and particularly of color were mm-hmm. a huge part you know in the movement but in that time and obviously to this day so. yes and thanks for giving that voice here represent well representing <laughs> yes well representing <laughs> yes yes um and you know this was kind of like the first group that was trying to say that the queer community could assimilate into the the United States society, um, which again, when we think about it not being that long ago, like I think, at least for me, I'm like, that's pretty terrible and crazy. Like, you know, 60 years ago, the queer community felt like they couldn't assimilate and were shunned and shamed and oppressed and um, demoralized. <clears throat> Still are, but um, we've made some progress. Yeah, and at that time, they were breaking laws. Um, I think... In doing some reading myself, mm-hmm. I called it different terms than I've seen. Impersonating um, another gender, I believe, is often read, and and that was against the law. Wow! And so, mm-hmm. um, when you think about what we think about the police, think about and up against that, just as a group of of people without Facebook to organize them or social media to yes. keep them together, <laughs> it's a pretty big thing. So, in your reading, you read that the queer community was being they they were told that they were doing something illegal by proposing or the trans community were doing something illegal by proposing as mm-hmm. wow of new york city wow yeah i know we um kind of uh, um down in the questions we're talking about like what progress we've made so that would definitely be a big one um yeah so you know we celebrate each june to um highlight the efforts of um, those individuals that were brave and proud. And I also just think that like, um, are people aware that there were Stonewall riots? That's the other thing is like, I don't, you know, we think that pride month and it's like very commercialized now, like is, you know, are people educated on the history and who really took, you know, action? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, that's part of the problem we have today, but at the same time, it's kind of, well, I mean, I think there's been a significant progress, but unfortunately, um, the way we interpret the past, of course, impacts how we're moving about in the present, you mm-hmm. know, whether that's systemic levels or individual levels or interpersonal levels. So, mm-hmm. um, but I think, you know, this last year with COVID and everything that's happened, even though there's been a significant, I guess, highlight of racism in this country. I mean, we can't, I mean, everybody intersects with that in some ways, including queer people and particularly queer people of color. So um, I think in a way, particularly recently, it's been rewritten in certain ways 
especially this last year and two years in terms of people being curious of mm-hmm. what we've learned in the past in school or other settings. So yeah, building I mean, that curiosity, I think. So. Yeah, Shift. we can, um, we can move to, we can move to COVID. We can move to how COVID has impacted the queer community. Um, Bab, you were great to provide some of the research. Um, this article by Lindsay Dawson, Ashley Kurzinger, and Jennifer Cates on the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on the LGBT people. Um, so I think that's important, really important. Um, let you all kind of um, fill in the gaps of why and who and what was going on for the community. Go ahead, Bev. You have the article. <laughs> well, I think beyond an article, I think personally knowing that what COVID did for everyone was to take away the communities that we mm. built and worked about in other than an online community. And for queer people, um, our communities beyond our families mm. are life-saving and that's mm. not that that's not um i'm not adding any emphasis to that and i can't think of the big word for that right now um so uh, to remove that ability and to be isolated um often isolated with non-affirming people or people that may be literally dangerous to um, has had a profound impact and so creating online spaces that are um safe and affirming and um have been vital. Absolutely. I love that. Like really touched my heart where you were saying like our, you know, for the queer community, um, oftentimes the community is outside of the family. And so like with COVID, like everyone was isolated, like not able to be around friends or maybe they were, I don't know, like just groups that like, I know like we go to like dance class and that's one of our communities, you know, like we weren't able to be around those people. And so like for people in the queer community, like how further isolated were they maybe if they were, you know, at home, you know, with family that is non-affirming and not supportive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's like, like COVID really highlighted something that is a really common queer experience. Like when, when I think about my life, right, I have a lot of privileges and I move through a lot of spaces where I know like my identities are, are typically affirmed and yet still like like last weekend for example I was away with um one of my closest group of queer friends and they're absolutely my chosen family and how I felt that weekend is Mm. so different from how I feel moving through the world on a day-to-day basis and so like that extra weight that you get to shed when you're with community and Mm. and understanding like that that is so lost and like mm. COVID just really robbed our community of so many spaces like that, where you might go home and you know, like you go by a different name, your pronouns aren't honored. Mm. Someone um, just like completely just doesn't think like think there's something so wrong with you. And then there, there are these whole spaces, groups of people um, and communities that we've built where like you're so seen and you don't like, like you feel normal or whatever normal mm. is and everyone else is giving you those other messages. Um, and so again, like just to further emphasize, right, if you are a young queer person, if you are a queer person of color, if you, if you hold other identities that are really marginalized by society, you were really rocked by COVID because doing it virtually also presented its own challenges, right? Did you have the space and access? Did you have the Wi-Fi that was strong enough to get into those, those places? Um, and nothing compares to being in person. You know, like I think it's why last weekend was so big for me because I was in person with Mm -hmm. my queer people and it was just like, it's indescribable. Absolutely. 
And I think um, the points that really stuck out was like that you can just like have that like sense of like shedding. Like you can just totally and utterly be yourself and not have to worry like you were saying about are my pronouns going to be used and respected like which name do I have to use can I be myself can I dress you know like myself and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there is so much loss like doing things virtually I think we all as you know social workers have felt that you know through our work this past mm -hmm. year um and just like statistics because again I'm a little like nerd historian researcher um from the article um LGBT people, 74% um, said they worried and felt stress um, from the pandemic um, and that it negatively impacted their mental health in comparison to 49% uh, of non-LGBT people. Um, there were higher um, job loss for LGBT people, um, you know, which impacted income. Um, so that was 56% for LGBT people versus 44% for non-LGBT people, um, and LGBT people um, had were highly affected in their um, working settings. They were in healthcare, in restaurants, and food industries, um, living on lower incomes and non-LGBT people, um, and just experiencing stigma and discrimination related to their orientation and identity. Um, Stefan, I know this is... Um, one that you can probably talk a little bit about. Let's just shift to like kind of the what like progress we made and what needs to be done, but like healthcare for trans individuals, like specifically like access to healthcare and um, just providers that are affirming and informed and sensitive, right? So that's like a big one in terms of like where, like what progress have we made since the 50s and 60s and since the Stonewall riots? Um, and that can be like legislation, healthcare. Etc. Um. Yeah, um, you know, I was thinking it's definitely had a ton of impact, and also um, in terms of the trans people, the trans community, and think in certain ways, COVID's provided easier access for people in terms of mental health care mm. uh, because you know, trans forward, you can know, take Medicaid, of course, and. Um, most of the practice, I would say, is Husky Medicaid. So pre pre previously, before COVID, they were not accepting telehealth. <clears throat> so I couldn't bill for telehealth and mm -hmm. get paid, essentially. So it wouldn't be covered. So people would have to come in. Mm -hmm. And of course, low-income folks are to get somewhere when you don't have money. <laughs> right. So um, transportation is a huge barrier. Um so in certain ways, most folks have been able to have access to Wi-Fi, especially with iPhones and things like that these days. Um, I didn't have so much an issue with that, but it has been so it has been significant in that with medical care too, because people can do telehealth for hormone services. And also there's certain company organizations like Plume, for example, is nationwide and they provide hormone treatment for folks across the country, and that's virtual. Um, they've probably exploited since COVID. So in saying that, I actually do not uh, prefer this, but <laughs> I do think it does provide access in that way. That has been a huge shift. Um, I do find, though, that folks do prefer in person, of course, prefer to be in person. So do I. However, in terms of medical mental health care that is affirming, I think mm. that since COVID has been a shift in providing access, particularly for folks of, well, of any marginalized identity, but particularly low-income people, um, 
So it's the pros and cons, you know, I can't say black or white, but I do think that um, in general, I will say one thing, I mean, COVID has almost just escalated issues that have already been present, Mm -hmm. especially for the trans community. And obviously it shifts in how, um, in the flow of that, but yeah, the anti-trans bills that have been, um, Brought to legislate. I mean, all of the medical barriers and systemic barriers for trans people has all existed, even in implicit ways, with sometimes mental health providers being gatekeepers, you know, for uh, for access to care for trans people and medical providers. And a lot of the root of that is just um, a lot of misunderstandings of trans people, queer people, and the intersection of gender and sexuality at large, you know. So, I mean, it's a big battle we're fighting, (laughs) but at the same time, it is important to acknowledge the small steps, of course, in like 10 years, 20 years, in the last 50 years. Um, But it can be disheartening, you know, because we have some wins and then we have some, you know, it's kind of like two steps forward, one step back, two steps back, three steps forward, you know, that's kind of how I'm seeing it. Um, And yeah particularly for trans people, because there's just a huge, even mental health misunderstanding of what the trans experience is and um, what that looks like and mental health and trauma. Mm-hmm. And so it's a big battle. Um, but at the same time, I think obviously us that's on this podcast <laughs> and affirming providers, of course, are so significant. Oh my gosh, like extremely life-changing. And so like honor the work that people do. Use the word disheartening, um, right? And so, like, pride, like the word in general, right? Like, it kind of emulates like excitement and happiness and celebration, which is also like part of why I like love the parades. But it also like it goes like pride goes hand in hand with the piece that is disheartening, right? Like we've made progress and we have rights, and and there has been like two steps forward, right? Like, and just not to get too political, but like even like the last you know, presidential, um, individual, um, (laughs) climate, um, right. Like rights were lost and examined and, you know, when it it was just awful. Um, so right. And this is like, I think how we all navigate life. It's like kind of pride, right. And that can represent one end and we can have disheartening and they can go hand in hand and we can kind of march forward. Um, so yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, like the the part that's disheartening to me is like is really related to the legislation mm-hmm. like they had the federal law against sodomy wasn't repealed until like 2005 like what wow. are you doing legislating what people can do in the bedroom <laughs> it's, it's, it's like such a ridiculous thing particularly when we know um statistically speaking cis het people are the ones who are doing more sodomy than anyone else we all outnumber us like that's just a fact <laughs> So it's like, it's like things like that. Right. Yes. And then like same sex marriage, 2015, that was, I, I remember it vividly. That's not long ago. Yes. Um, and again, so like zooming out, these are like the most privileged folks within our community. So then you look at like anti-trans legislation and it's not only really, really limited in terms of how it's progressing, but it's being rolled back. Um, and then we have to, I think, look at like geographic privilege. I feel super privileged to be in the Northeast if I mm-hmm. weren't in Jersey. So much of the legislation, so much of the mm-hmm. former administration would have 
really had an impact on me completely directly and my family and the people I care about. And so it's sort of like until we can all feel the same, like for that I do being in Jersey, like we're not really getting anywhere. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, that's why we, it's important to remember history and, and we have like the people who are on the forefront of all of the change within our community are trans women of color. They tend to be the most oppressed. They tend to be the most highly legislated, highly um, policed, highly like experienced violence at, at higher rates. And so they're the ones fighting because it, it's benefiting all of us, but they're the ones who are dying at higher rates as well. Um, and so it's, I mean, it's super messed up. Not, I, I know we were, we were, we were taking a turn to like how pride is something to celebrate and it absolutely is. Um, I think we need to celebrate it with an edge of attitude. I love that. <laughs> Direct quote. <laughs> celebrate pride with an edge of attitude. Absolutely. Um, no, but I agree. Like it's important to look at dates, right? So Zan, you were talking about in 2015, um, same sex marriage, right? Um, in, in 2005, the laws on, on sodomy. Um, I don't have the year on this, but adoption rates for same-sex couples, um, known as the Fulton um, versus City of Philadelphia case, um, just like that, we have 11 um, openly LGBT members of the 117th Congress currently. Um, voting rights. That number is a little bit misleading because we've only ever had 20. Say it again. I don't know if it caught out. We have We've only ever had 26 members ever in the history of Congress. So mm -hmm. think of the history of our country. We have 11 now. Mm -hmm. But it only began in the, I think, in the 70s or the 80s that there was one or two people. And often they were outed against their counterparts. Right. Maybe mm -hmm. even after they died. Um, and so to think now, mm -hmm. yes, we have 11. That's amazing. Great. Um, but the history. In 117 Congress years of Congress, yeah, yes, yes, the percentages are staggering. Um, gender affirming healthcare, so that was you know like what rights we've seen and what rights have been banned. Um, um can I add, Jacqueline? Yeah, yeah, of course, please. You can yeah. to Zan's comment. Um. I cut my video off because I'm going to take a risk. Mm -hmm. it up. Uh, <laughs> um, but in that point, what Zan was saying, I think it's important too. Um, I've noticed a trend too. Um, and just since opening Trans Forward, honestly, and just keeping up with things, I get much more denials or rejections from insurance company author authorizing gender affirming procedures from trans women of color than I do trans masculine people. Wow. Yeah, I would say I've mm, maybe gotten one or two of all race. I would say at large trans masculine folks get approved more than trans feminine people, I would say. And then within that umbrella, there's trans women of color get denied much more frequently. And I'm not, I don't think that this is explicit, of course. I think it's just implicit bias and things that are happening. Let's just say in the context of Connecticut and Huskies, you know, these are the folks, Huskies management team has doctors that look at these letters and approve. And typically they're not trans. Actually, I would probably say that none of them are trans. And um, I don't know how educated these people are in trans care. They go by the WPATH standards, though, which do have trans folk on the board, but that's also embedded in this system. Anyways, without getting too off track, 
my point is back to Zan's comment that trans women of color get much, it's harder to, I mean, even if, okay, you have, you have insurance, you have a provider, it's going to write you letters, you have your letters, you have everything you need for the procedure, mm -hmm. you submit the documentation you have, and then you get denied, denied, denied. I usually have to meet with them about one or two more times. And then, you know, to give specific examples of dysphoria, which is extremely dehumanizing, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and examples in public being misgendered or not passing because of facial features. It's just incredibly, like, it feels like an experiment um, mm -hmm. for people, you know, like a bodily experiment. Um, because it's really just dehumanizing in terms of objectifying someone's body and... Mm -hmm. The truth is they just need procedures because they need the procedures and it's medically necessary, but they want to deny procedures because they're not medically necessary according to these insurance companies. So I think it's just an example of how this manifests systemically, you know, and all the parts that Zan was talking about, you know, the oppression and how these can kind of, how it plays out. It's just a trend I've noticed too, and I'm not, you know, I'm one person. And this is significant amount of trans people and it just it's a pattern i've noticed though over the years it, it's um it's telling that um but on to the pride note i think like i said there's a lot to be done but it's also we've made a lot of strides at the same time mm -hmm. yeah that's all i wanted to add <laughs> <laughs> that was a good ad right just the experience of it's very demoralizing right like these are important words to say out loud you know things are disheartening for our community things are demoralizing for our community like Cisgender, heterosexual individuals are not experiencing dehumanizing or demoralizing experiences on a day-to-day -day basis that the queer community is. It's definitely, in terms of pride, it's, it's, um, it's important in the work we do, I think, to, to honor ourselves, too, and to maintain self-protection and self-care. Mm -hmm. um, so to sustain, I think that's a good term, as you were talking about pride. Um, yeah, pride for the self, pride for the community. Mm -hmm. I think we're very interconnected. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I think also, like, um, you know, as a cisgender heterosexual female as myself, like, as an ally, as a therapist, um, as a family member, as a, a friend, like, it is my responsibility to educate and listen to the experiences of, of individuals in the queer community. That's how we learn, right? Like, I love when my clients teach me new things, um, thinking of a couple of my clients in general, but... It's a privilege for me to be allowed to walk that journey with individuals in the queer community because I can't firsthand relate, but I can hold space and I can just simply offer my empathy and support and um, openness to understanding what that's like. And I think, you know, anyone that's listening that maybe needs that nudge, like to how to understand better is, is simply just to listen, just simply listen, just have an open heart. Um, no, you are not the expert. Educate yourself. That's what we can do. Yeah. Can I say one more thing and then I'm not going to talk until... You can um, say as many things as you want. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> we have 29 minutes um, and 15 seconds left, so you can say... Like, literally, it'll take you 30 seconds. Um, that, you know, I always tell people and not that it's kind of offer, you know, anytime that someone else's expression or embodiment of gender and or sexuality and by sexuality i mean sexual behavior sexual orientation sexual attraction etc bothers you i just simply ask people to ask where's that feeling coming from mm -hmm. because it's usually 
you know, transphobia and homophobia almost from a source of distress for that. And so much of other people's projection of their own shame, about whatever that is about themselves, because it's not very rational for someone to be so distressed over someone else's sexuality and gender doesn't really make sense. I mean, some of our brains work and our body, and it's typically coming from a source of distress within that person. It doesn't mean that someone's necessarily, um, can identify with that person. Although I think something about that other person triggers this other person, you know, who's you know, projecting this, um, like fear, mm-hmm. essentially, you know, threat, seeing trans people as a threat, seeing queer people as a threat. That means something about that other person, not about the trans person, not about the queer person. Um, and that's not something to, I don't think that has to be bad either. I think that if someone's noticing a source of internal distress for, themselves about somebody else's expression of gender and sexuality i think that could just be a way to offer okay where is this coming from you know it could just be a way to be curious about where that's coming from inside of me Mm -hmm. um without causing harm before causing harm to either myself or to another person and of course that takes incredible insight but um i think it's important for people to know that people that are coming from homophobic transphobic stances there's it can be empowering i think as a trans person and trans people i'll speak for you know as a trans person um it can be empowering way to de-internalize a message that i maybe have internalized there's something wrong with me and can frame harm from a source so someone who's being transphobic and whatever it's a systemic way interpersonal way I can take a step back and say, okay, wait, it's not about me. And in that way, I think that's empowering. Um, because for me as a trans person, trans, that's receiving harm, let's say transphobia. And then to also see this person or the system that is transphobic causing harm as, okay, I can see them in more empath, I guess, an empathetic light, because that's going to create space for me to heal no matter who they are. If that kind of makes sense. Um, because people all the time will say, I know it's not about me. I know it's not about me. And sometimes mm-hmm. we can say that and feel it feels differently. Part of me feels like, oh, I am wrong or there's something wrong with me. Um, but I think by creating that space, you know, knowing there's that's not about me, they're projecting their own stuff to me. Maybe I can create space for myself to just work on this wound that comes from a deeper source of internalized transphobia. Um and I guess I'll kind of end with that. I mean, that's kind of how I see pride in that way, mm-hmm. being able to reframe and sort of take harm that is being done or that has been done, that internalized pain, mm-hmm. shame that is traumatic over mm-hmm. the course of the lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, to know, okay, it's not about me. I know this happened to me as a child or throughout my whole life, but this person is somehow, some way projecting their own distress onto me. And that's a way to just create a and of course, easier said than felt, and that's the work of healing. But mm-hmm. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> <laughs> I love that the work of healing, and also, you know, it's a good reminder for uh, individuals and therapists, like especially when working with individuals in the queer community, that um, like, it, the reminder, like it isn't, it's it's someone else's thing to own. Like if they are uncomfortable with uh, gender orientation or sexual orientation. That's theirs. That's theirs to sort out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other person's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just to piggyback off of what Stefan had said, <laughs> thank you for that, for that setup, by the way. Um, 
if there's transphobia and there's homophobia, almost always there's misogyny. Mm-hmm. Not, I guess maybe that's a little strong. Look for misogyny because we do not like when people like, uh, I'm using air quotes for those listening, like give up their masculinity. We do not like it. We think that that is a horrible thing. And I think that that's a, a big reason why um, there's a bit of like a power difference between if you're a trans mask person versus a trans femme person. Like we don't, we as a society really prioritize masculine manliness from like a white Puritan values kind of place. Um, and so people get really uncomfortable and squicked out when we do any kind of gender play. Um, and they like people have been trying to also legislate that since the beginning of the colonizers arriving to the U S and, and like seeing indigenous folks and how the women have like really different roles in, in different tribes and how they have, what would we, we would consider we being of course, like Western white people would consider like masculine roles being taken on by people who are femme or, or female, um, and, you know, men dressing as women and, and hanging out with women and maybe within their culture or maybe, I guess, through our lens and language, we would consider them trans. And we still, again, like the, the people from the colonizers time began to immediately like, oh, you, you've got to find God here. Here's what God looks like. Let's just separate this right out. Uh, you uh, take off that dress, like get over here, right? like all of that. And it, and it comes from a place of misogyny and it's why. Um, women and, and femme folks are are really bearing the brunt of this still. Toxic masculinity. For sure. I'm learning new things. I love it. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, wait, what? Like, say it again. <laughs> I'll I'll listen. Like to I'll I'll re-listen to the podcast a couple times. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, right, like this is why we have to do this work. This is why we have to open our mouths and speak our knowledge and disseminate this information. It's important. Mm-hmm. We have to educate. We have to share our experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have, sorry, one quick thing, and then I'm going to also pull back. Why? Um, <laughs> I don't know why anyone is. Again, we're good on time. <laughs> I'll let you all know. Um, so if if anyone has not yet watched Pose, I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, there's this scene in, like, the one of the season finales, and one of a, a cis guy who I... I think he's cis and het. He's he's thanking all of his gay queer friends for showing him what masculinity is, and it's like the most healthy speech ever heard about masculinity, and it's so beautiful. I mean, now granted, I cry that my whole way through that show, so like, big warning. Yeah. <laughs> watch it when you're in a space where you really can watch it, and you can be surrounded and and feel okay about it. And it's that I think is what I I see a lot of pride in. That I see a lot of pride in that I really trust and believe that that was happening in communities of color back in the like 70s and 80s and 90s. And so if I can trust and believe that it happened, then I can trust and believe that we can we can keep moving there. And I'd like us to get there like decades ago. And I'm mm. still really, really committed to being part of getting there now. I love that. I'm definitely going to put that on the queue. Is it Netflix? Everything's on Netflix. HBO, Netflix or FF. FF, yeah. okay. Cool. I love that. Yeah. I, I think it's also important, like books and other podcasts and shows that are doing, you know, good work and um, just help share the experience in a way that is um, relatable and tangible and understandable. And I think that, you know, the intersection with mental health for the LGBTQIA plus community is important. Also, obviously, we're all clinicians. So 
I don't know. I think we're constantly looking at that. Um, you know, I primarily teach teens and emerging adults. And so that's the stage of development often where orientation identity is starting to be discussed and I further identified. And, you know, there's, um, sex hormones that are beginning to develop. And so those feelings and, um, again, orientations are, are becoming more, a bit more pronounced and prominent. And, and, um, so let's talk about that. And maybe again, like I think that there's therapists that listen to the podcast. So maybe a tip or two on gender affirming care and, um, queer affirming care in our uh, therapeutic settings. I think personally, well, it's not personally, it's personally and professionally. It starts just from, from your, your website. It starts from your materials, the language that you're using. It starts with the first phone call. It starts with your, your intake. Um, that you're, you're not assuming anything. You're asking. Um, we carry identities that aren't visible and we shouldn't be assuming um, being able to state that for someone and show that you have an open and a curious um, a curiosity towards whoever they are or thinking about who they are um, if we're talking with people that are um, you know younger younger folks that are thinking it through and figuring it out or anyone that's thinking it through or figuring it out certainly my history, it took me a long time to think it through and figure it out. So um, I, that's where I start. And I think it goes a long way. And it seems, seems really little, but it's not. It's it's huge. When I think back, um, I went to Germany a couple years ago and someone, a friend there asked me about like, what is this with you Americans with pronouns? And when I think back to how it's come so far in just those intervening two years where um, in our Northeast um Worlds, we, they're just standard now, um, but I think being able to um, infiltrate um, broader communities, um, seemingly small steps like language and curiosity are everything. Absolutely. Um, I love that reminder too. I'm like, oh, hmm, I should really update my website, right? <laughs> like that's simple. Even just having pronouns on your website or even like on your next to your Zoom name suggests like, I am educated and I like that in and of itself, I feel like speaks a, a morsel or maybe like a chunk of a brownie, like square out of the pan. Um, but it just says something, right? It says like, I, I know and I'm educated enough to be sensitive and curious. Yeah. And I, I guess I can go next. I think what I really love about this work is that if you're a good clinician, it's like, it's not rocket science, you know, there might be like some knowledge areas where you could stand to learn a bit. Mm -hmm. um, if you're able to like defer to client language, um, be non-judgmental, ask curious questions and do some work on the back end, you're probably going to be really helpful to someone, you know, um, being able to see them as they see themselves and as they want to be seen. These mm -hmm. are really important. Um, so a lot of that is really just ensuring that, um, that we don't fall into like, heteronormativity or mm -hmm. binary standards um and that we don't fall into like whiteness we fall you know like we, we want to just like really really shatter what has been drilled to us and so doing that every in every session in every interaction is really helpful and, and there are kind of like lots of small nuanced ways to do it um and and there are some some bigger ways that i think just being being curious and and again like deferring to the client's language and if especially like if you're working with someone who's questioning either their sexual orientation or their gender identity, being careful not to like 
push them anywhere, but really just to help them explore where they are and where, if they want to go somewhere, if they're okay where they are, um, normalizing the, like the not knowing. I think we have this belief that we are born as humans and everything is fixed. Um, mm. And really like we adapt identities over our lifespan. And so that's very normal. So why would it be any different with sexual orientation with your gender identity? Um, so I think some of it is just like debunking, like this is not rocket science. This is really good care. If you can provide good care, you're set. Go, go provide good care for us <laughs> and yes. for our people. Yeah. And like you said, simple, like be curious, ask questions. I love the adapt identity through lifetime, right? Like we constantly are changing, right? Like I'm, yeah. I'm vegan tomorrow or like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, like that's all accepted. Like. I think that that's important too. It's like, who cares? Like just allow people to be themselves. Why is there so much attention and energy on this and in not good ways? Yeah. Sorry. I know vegan and sexual orientation are not the same thing. But. And I think also those are good tips for clinicians that want to understand like how to do it differently. I think also paperwork is another important one, like just using some gender affirming language and in intake paperwork. Again, just suggests that, you know, your practice is informed and educated and that you know if you're in the queer community beautiful and you're an ally beautiful you know like mental health i mean again like because i'm a nerd in statistics um project um so they did a study in 2020 among lgbtq plus youth um 40 percent of youth um had considered suicide and for uh trans and non-binary youth that was at 48 percent um you know, self-harming, high statistics, generalized anxiety disorder at 68%. Um, and one in three LGBTQ youths have reported they've been physically threatened or harmed in their lifetime because of their identity. Um, and the community just at large experiences anxiety, depression, and trauma caused by internalized homophobia, gender dysphoria, discrimination in their personal and work lives, the public sphere, um, and, you know, just limitations to access to critical health care. And I think also, like, as, as clinicians, it's like we all have a responsibility to provide affirming care. You know, I think that people get closed-minded and think, like, oh, I don't know how to do this. It's like, okay, figure it out. Like, figure it the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> Direct quote. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the affirming piece is huge and, you know, I can't, I don't know if you can talk about trans affirming care without, without it being trauma centered mm -hmm. uh, for that reason. Um, because of internalized shame is, I think is inevitable over the course of someone's life at some point being trans. And, um, I think in saying that, including in medical care and mental health care, um, I think it's important to at least consult with trans people or at least be in some fashions, you know, of consulting and learning of the trans experience. If someone's not trans, I think in healthcare and in mental health care, and oftentimes I'll find there's organizations that lead trans movements or lead trans healthcare, mm -hmm. which unfortunately is dominated by cis um, folks, predominantly mm -hmm. cis heteronormative white um, people, including research of trans people, um, mm -hmm. which really distorts the research trans people because mm. it's coming through a framework of someone who's not trans mm. and um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. I think it takes everyone um, but I do think it's important to have trans people in the conversation and at these tables mm -hmm. um, including 
health care and mental health care um, because uh, it's just like I don't think we'd have a movement of all white people leading an anti-racist movement. Right. It just can't happen. Right. It doesn't make sense across any marginalized group. It doesn't. It's just it's not appropriate. Um, so, you know, I think trauma centered trans embracing um, trans embracing to me is just supportive of trans people and understanding that. There's nothing wrong with being trans. It's a natural way of humanity. It's a normal human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, gender variance is very normal. Mm-hmm. I would argue that a lot of cis people could maybe dig a little deeper in their own gender experience and uh, what gender means to mean, particularly cis men um, who are terrified to experience femininity sometimes. But again, this goes from harmful, toxic masculine messages. I think we're all a product of that, including cis men. Um, me as a trans man, I'm a product of that. And trans people have a lot to say about gender. And I think that goes back to Bev's point, you know, listening to language is so, so crucial because trans people have so much to say about gender, just knowing, and this isn't an egocentric comment at all. This is a very, I mean, I've learned so much from trans people. Um, not, I mean, I'm trans, but trans people come from all types of backgrounds and identities and bodies and ways of being and but there is one common theme and that is internalized shame mm. um and that is not being seen and heard mm. that varies from age and background but a very clinical theme is not being seen and heard mm. for an authentic core gender expression for mm. someone's life and trans people are trans from birth and some people may argue that but being trans is trans there's no pre-post there's no it's not a black and white experience and i think that kind of goes against the grain of how sometimes dysphoria is framed especially in the dsm and mental health or in healthcare. Mm. but it's I, I frame you know trans affirming care and trans embracing care has to be spectrum based it has to be in the mm-hmm. gray um Obviously, our brains want to compartmentalize, of course, but it's not binary. And I say that to cis people, too, that offer, mm-hmm. you know, exploring your own expression. You know, what does a woman mean to you? What does being a man actually mean to you? Trans people are forced to confront to this answer question in a very profound way. Um, you know, what does it mean to actually be a man? And even me as a trans man, I mean, I identify, I say as a man socially, but I, I mean, internally, I don't feel like a cis man. I mean... It's very, you know, there's the social layers of gender, but there's also this essence of who we are. And um, trans people are not cis, you know, and I think that's a hard thing to swallow. Of course, and it's been a hard thing for me to swallow. It's taken me a long time to realize that that's only a root of internalized transphobia. You know, there's nothing wrong with trans, it's normal. Um, and so that's what a huge foundation of my practice is. And I'll just end there with just embracing and affirming and holistic care is crucial, you know, very crucial for trans and queer people. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Honoring time. Um, one last, like, throw it in. This is what I want people to hear as we kind of you know, navigate the rest of June. Um, just something inspiring or that kind of hold in your heart when it comes to pride month i just talked a lot but and then just saying embrace you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> embrace you embrace life there's nothing wrong with you if you're mm-hmm. trans you know you're perfectly fine your body is perfectly fine mm-hmm. embrace you and whatever that means for you and expression and journey and then for cis folks their allies um so embrace you i think that's what i've ended with i think 
it's very important for people just to look within before looking out. Um, I think so much of, of the homophobia and transphobia is rooted in that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I leave. You know, look within before looking out. Yeah. Mine was just a quick quote that I was that I came across when I was doing a little research is, it's time for parents to teach young people early on that in diversity there is beauty and there is strength. I really like that one. I think I would just encourage people to use this month as a time to educate yourself, mm-hmm. to learn a little bit more. Yeah, it's great. You can see rainbows everywhere. and um, But I, I think it's using that as a reminder um, because there is – to be curious and to use it as a month where you're you're really educating so that you can be better allies or be better therapists or be whatever it is you're trying to be. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I say I vote we celebrate. You know, this is a hard-earned month, um, mm-hmm. and there's lots of fighting that we'll always have to do. And um, I usually very affectionately refer to myself as a humongous weirdo. And I think during this month, I feel a little less weird. And um, so I hope that for other queer folks, you can you can find some some comfort and community in this month and, and like go around and like, like I've already had the experience of like my, my matching rainbow watch band. Like mm-hmm. I, I run into people like, hey, I like your watch band. Um, my wife was saying the other day, like, oh, yeah, and at, at dinner like this person who was wearing like an hrc mask like thanks or said oh i love your pride shirt right mm-hmm. and so like this, this is really a time for a lot more of that and mm-hmm. so like be really mindful this mm-hmm. month this is our time and you know it's we're always going to need to make changes and advance things and if we don't take this time to use it as self-care mm-hmm. and community building and self-love and just love the humongous weirdo within you um then you'll never see yourself as normal because you are. <laughs> I love that. I love the humongous weirdo inside of you. <laughs> Thank you all. Um, next time on Two Therapist Tales, please join us as we explore what it means when relationships transition. We'll be welcoming Kim Barner, LSW, onto the podcast. And our closing quote is from Senator Tammy Baldwin. All of us who are openly gay are living and writing the history of our movement. We are no more and no less heroic than the suffragists and abolitionists of the 19th century and the labor organizers, freedom riders, stonewall demonstrators, and environmentalists of the 20th century. We are ordinary people living our lives and trying, as civil rights activist Dorothy Cotton said, to fix what ain't right in our society. Thank you all for joining. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for therapy or mental health treatment. Please reach out to a licensed professional or facility if you are struggling and need to talk to someone.